if you want to understand an African in a meaningful way, you will have to factor in religion. So it affects his or her social life, economic life, political life. The Catholic Church is consistently present among the people. Now in Africa, there are regions, there are countries that um, experience conflict. The church seems to be the only institution that remains, remains with the people, among the people. Welcome to another episode of Global Get Down. Today we're joined by James J. Gorney, an associate professor of theology at Creighton University and a former Fulbright scholar. Dr. Carney is an expert on various aspects of church-state relations, particularly in the Eastern African countries of Rwanda, Uganda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Join us as we discuss the role that Catholicism plays in Central Africa in shaping political outcomes and choices in the, in the post-colonial Africa, both in theory and in practice. To start with, it goes without saying that the Catholic Church is an institution that is integral to the cultural foundations and social welfare of African countries. So what is the history behind this establishment of Catholicism in Africa, and is it rooted primarily in colonialism? Yeah, thanks to both of you for inviting me uh, to be a part of your conversation today. So to answer your question on the history of Catholicism, you're right, about one in six uh, sub-Saharan Africans identifies as Catholic today. So it's a significant community that it's, it might even be close to one in five now. Uh, the roots of the Catholic tradition in Africa actually go back to the late 15th century. The first missions came with Portuguese encounters around the time of Columbus. It's lesser known than Columbus, but there were similar exploratory and trading encounters that were happening on the West African coast. Uh, those communities remain relatively small, although the Congolese church is interesting because it became very indigenized, both in terms of leadership and even in terms of practice, uh, and became quite successful uh, up until around the year 1700. Um, but the main Catholic presence in sub-Saharan Africa came uh, roughly in the mid to late 19th century and into the early 20th century, along with, the, as you mentioned in your question, the arrival of uh, colonialism. Some of these missions actually preceded the formal political and economic structures of colonialism. Others came with it. Others came later. Uh, colonial, the relationship between the church and colonialism is complex in that clearly religion was a part of the civilizing mission of colonial powers. And at the same time, missionaries could be quite critical of colonial agents and often were a little bit more embedded on the ground with local peoples. Uh, so it's for sure they were part of the project, but there were definitely tensions within the different European wings of the project. So Maybe just to conclude, the, the real growth in Catholicism in Africa came in the 20th century, and particularly as the church began to indigenize in the 1950s and then through the end of the 20th century. That's where you really see real tremendous growth from uh, what had been, you know, present numbers, but relatively small numbers into the early 20th century. Talk a bit about the indigenization of this mm -hmm. and how if at all there is any legacy of kind of, well, there's no other way of saying it, the ugly roots of how this began. Mm -hmm. The general expectation in the 1950s is that with the rise of African nationalism, uh, at independence, Christian missions would recede along with uh, the broader European colonial project. And in fact, many missionaries in the 1950s were very worried and often even opposed to African nationalism. But if anything that did not happen, I think there are a couple of reasons for this. One, the churches, even though they were skeptical about elements of nationalism, did see the handwriting on the wall and they began to indigenize their leadership structures as early as the 1930s and 40s, but definitely in the 1950s and 60s. There was a real shift from a predominantly missionary leadership to, in the case of the Catholic Church, predominantly African bishops that then goes down through the priesthood and sisters, the start of local congregations. Uh, you also have a, you had a generation of African priests who were deeply Catholic, yet also deeply anti-colonial. 
uh, I think of a group of priests that wrote a very famous book in the 1950s called Des Prêt, was it Des Prêt Noir Cetéragonte? You know, which my my I might have butchered that in French, but it broadly means in English the you know African priests interrogate, uh, and what they were driving at is that the religion needed to continue, but it needed to also separate from what had been a largely negative view of indigenous religion, African culture, and of course the racism that was in that project. So a lot of your leaders that come to power are deeply religious people. I think that's another factor. African culture, is there's a deep spirituality to it that does not just go away. Uh, there's no major secular move as what you might see in Europe in the 60s and 70s or North America. So I think those are some of the reasons that the church survives and then and then in many ways even flourishes. And the last thing I'd mention is just the church coming out of the colonial period provided a tremendous amount of social and educational services for people. Uh, and people were not eager to lose those. And the, the Catholic schools tended to be the strongest. Catholic charitable uh, uh, operations were also very, very successful and the in the church throughout the post-colonial period remained a very you could say a well-run actor so even when the state was struggling even when there might be conflict going on in society the catholic church in particular was very well organized and i think continued to run very well which also helped it to continue to grow and going off of that in post-colonial Africa, could opponents of Christianity and the church uh, have attributed the church to merely being a product of colonialism? Yes. And I mean, there were definitely debates around that from, I mean, even within Christian circles that expand to Protestant churches too, there was a debate on what was called the missionary moratorium in the late 60s and 70s, where even African Christian leaders, some called for stopping all foreign missionaries so that churches could fully break from it. There were other political moves, such as in Congo, um, Mobutu Sese Seko's efforts to uh, establish what was called authenticité in French, which was an a kind of an authenticity movement that would reject uh, European influences and even things such as Christian names or Christian holidays. I, you know, there were Marxist movements also in place to some degree in Mozambique, also Ethiopia that took an anti-clerical turn. I, you know, it's again, these movements were there. It's just interesting. They just never really succeeded. <laughs> so and there just isn't even like what happens in China where you really could say, yeah, there's a, you know, there was a real successful purge of these churches in the 1950s. So. You know, they're there, but if anything, I think regular people tended to rally around the churches. A lot of those debates, I think, resonated more in elite circles, but I don't think there was a, for the most part, there were not mass movements against the church, and most people continued to want to practice. And so ultimately, even in, whether it's Mozambique or Ethiopia or Burundi briefly went through some of this, ultimately they would make peace with the churches, even in Congo after about five years. Mobutu's like, we've got to, you know, there's no real way forward. So we have to make peace with the churches. And that's generally been what's happened in post-colonial Africa that, um, you know, there may be tensions between church and state, there may be criticisms, but there hasn't been an extirpation of religion of in the way that you see in some other parts of the world. What role would you say generally, specifically, you could focus on Central Africa, Eastern Africa, which is, I believe, especially, which is overall in African politics. What role does religion actually play? Is it enlightening or interesting in any way to actually look at this different stems? Because, well, the politics of the region are pretty complicated to begin with, right? As politics everywhere, but specifically in this region with the Western discourse and stuff, it's difficult enough, at least for like a novice to make sense of everything that's going on. So adding this additional lens of religion and trying to understand kind of well, religion-state relations is understanding developments in the history of the area. How does that contribute to our knowledge overall of trying to understand it? Does it take away in any way? Does it add in any way? Or does it do both at the same time? You know, religion has a very central role in African societies, both in the pre-colonial world, colonial, post-colonial, and the, the kind of lines that Westerners often draw between the political and the spiritual are not uh, felt as much. It's not that there's no distinction, but I think there's more of a blurring, you could say, 
so that shapes a lot of these questions in ways, that, you know, from the public role of churches to, you know, if you look at, you know, recent Pew survey of Muslims and Christians in Africa, you'll see evidence of that, you know, most people support a very public role for religion, even supporting things such as the Bible or the or Sharia being the law of the land. And I'm not sure that people fully flesh out what that might mean, but it just reflects people's attitudes that in general, religion and, and religious actors are expected to be socially and publicly active, uh, that leaders are expected to be, to some degree, pious. Uh, and I think then that kind of shapes all the way up that again that doesn't mean there's not corruptions or problems but whether you're talking about foreign policy or whether you are talking about um just state policy in general you're all you're dealing with a religious factor that may not be present in some other parts of the world although i you know, I don't, I definitely don't think that's exclusive to Africa. Because you mentioned uh, church state tensions in one of our discussions earlier. So um, in your article, Global Catholicism, Diverse, Troubled, Holding mm. Steady, uh, you covered the five key themes in global Catholicism in the 20th century. And um, one of those being the church state tensions that you mentioned earlier, and the other being uh, the intertwining of Catholic and national identity. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, I was reading your other articles, and uh, in one of them, you mentioned that in Africa, it is usually the Catholic Church that mm -hmm. acts as the quote-unquote primary public voice of conscience mm -hmm. uh, by holding up the peace and democratization within Africa. Um, mm -hmm. With this intersection of social welfare and religion at the grassroots level in mind, uh, have there been instances from the 1900s onwards in Africa where these religious figures have tried to influence politics or influence mm -hmm. people's ideas and opinions to conform to Catholic ideals and as such? For sure, any any actor, whether they're an NGO or whether they're a religious group or whether they're a political party, is always trying to shape the civic space to try to reflect their ideals. In general, however, African societies, unlike, for example, colonial Latin America, whatever respect the Catholic Church might have, or even criticisms, it, it doesn't control everything. So, and there, you know, we're still talking about formally modern constitutionally secular states. We're not talking about the Republic of Iran or something like this. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, I, I don't, you don't want to exaggerate. I mean, the church is important, but, you know, you have parties, you have all sorts of economic and business interests, you have foreign actors, you have military factors. And so um, with that being said, what, what I find, I, I mean, just today I was actually reading on sort of the Catholic Church's role with democratization in Congo. And what I find interesting, because I, again, I think in the West, people assume that if you're propagating a religious agenda, you're trying to sort of make the public religious, right? And then, and people get, and they think of some right-wing party or something they don't like, and they get all twitchy. So, but that's honestly not, like what you see in Congo is over and over the church speaking for democratization, speaking for the rule of law, speaking for free and fair elections, calling for turnovers in power, uh, you know, it, calling for peace during the war. So it's it's often, it's not so much that, on one level, yes, it, it reflects, I think, Catholic ideals from Catholic social teaching and from, uh, you know, particular teachings of the popes, but it's not necessarily just a sectarian religious identity, like we're going to impose the catechism on you and you have to, you know, do this and this and this. It's it's often, at least in the particularly in the late twentieth century, been framed more as how do we support the common good, uh, but that these religious motivations are very very important in justifying that. So I, you know, for sure, I think in the twenty first century, you've seen some tensions around questions of in Africa around sexuality, around um, some LGBTQ issues, sometimes contraception and abortion, but even then, I don't think the tension is as great as in North America, in part because the, the cultures are more socially conservative. Uh, so it's not to say there's no debate, but you don't have this like massive flashpoint that you might see in North America, where the perception is that the public is here and then the churches are here. Uh, and so I think the general 
social conservatism around particularly gender and sexuality also maybe is not led to a kind of stereotype of the churches as somehow, you know, just being off in their own world, which I think I do think sometimes comes up in North America, whether it's justified or not. This is interesting because about two or three hours ago, I just went and gave an exam, which dealt to a certain extent with the clash of civilizations. And this entire exam, this entire kind of example about um, how certain cultures, again, these are maybe kind of outdated arguments, not many, not too many prominent, uh, they're not too many prominent um, individuals or institutions that actually propagate these today. But at least in like the 1960s, 1970s, there were a lot of arguments about, and it's interesting because I completely blanked out about all of this during my test, but it's all coming back to me now. Um, there was a lot of argument about how certain cultures, certain religions, Protestantism, for example, are more compatible, quote unquote, with democracy. Whereas mm -hmm. countries which are Catholic or Islamic or other, let's say, Confucian ideals, for example, they don't mm -hmm. really work out that well with this. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned in your response that it, um, a lot of Catholic kind of, if I'm if I'm getting this right, a lot of Catholic agents, individuals in this context of Central and East Africa, a lot mm -hmm. of them propagate democratic ideals. Is there something inherent about the nature of Catholicism and its message that mm. leads to this message? Or is there like an, a different agenda behind using the no, your question is a good one. I mean, I'm I'm familiar with some of these arguments around even northern versus southern Europe and the, you know, going back to the early modern period. And I mean, for sure the Catholic Church is a deeply hierarchical community, although it's always interesting that they elect their Pope through a very democratic you know, I guess supermajority in a way. Uh, so it's not just an absolute monarchy, but obviously it's very hierarchical. The church is not democratic in any kind of modern political way. But I think sometimes even observers overlook a major turn that happens with the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, which largely reversed the church's previous opposition to modernization, the French Revolution, a lot of the net developments of the 19th century, which had been largely perceived as being anti-Catholic, which in some cases they were. But really in the 1960s, there's a real shift. Uh, and that grew partly out of the tradition of Catholic social thought that goes back to the late 19th century and, and tried to chart, you could say, um, a third way between the extremes of libertarian capitalism and Marxist communism. Uh, but I think after World War II as well, I think there's a growing recognition of the bankruptcy of, of fascism and of kind of absolutist projects of politics. And so, you know, beginning in Europe with movements like Christian democracy also had led by a lot of Catholic agents, people like Jacques Maritain, for example, would be very influential there. There was a real shift in Catholic politics, you could say, toward democratization, uh, and while the Vatican II did, doesn't have a formal document on this, the whole spirit of the council moves toward, you know, seeing the church as the people of God, calling the church to be in solidarity with those who are suffering, you know, broadly embracing, you could say, at least the ideals of modern democracy. And so like a political scientist like Samuel Huntington, which I don't agree with Huntington on so many things, but I think in this case, he's right. He says, you know, one of the great factors in late 20th century politics that gets overlooked is the Catholic Church becoming pro-democracy. That was not the case right up until even World War II, but very much is the case. And it's been a huge issue, whether in the Philippines after the Marcos dictatorship or in uh, Africa, as we've been discussing with Christian democracy in Europe. Uh, so I, yeah, to answer your question, I think, yeah, historic, I would not say there's something essential in Catholicism in some kind of deep historical way. And, and there are, are currents in the church, even today, they're very authoritarian. I mean, Steve Bannon would love to turn the clock back toward a kind of Catholic authoritarianism. But I think the overall nature of the church has moved in a much more pro-democracy way. And that, that intersected within the rise of these local churches in Africa and I think those two movements then intersected very strongly, which partly explains why the church has been so pro-democracy for most of its modern history on the continent. And would you say that's a, well, I don't know if strategy is the right word, because strategy would imply that it's kind of a plotted maneuver that they're using, um, although it sounds like it's more of just like something that's come together naturally. But would you say mm. that that's, if we do use that word strategy, would you say that's a strategy that's broadly working? Is it getting mm. the kind of popular support that, well, individuals in leadership would aspire to get? 
Well, that's yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I think, you know, to to quote this again, this Congolese scholar I was just reading today, I mean, his, his sense is it's just it's not right. I that you know, there's been a lot of positive statements and letters and even you know, lobbying. But when you look at the actual state of democracy in much of the continent, it's not real good. And if anything, things have reversed some in the last quarter century toward a kind of semi-authoritarianism. Now, one of the reasons for that, and this is maybe, I don't think this undermines what I said earlier, but I do think there's a lot of concern with disorder and with corruption uh, and also with the democratic system where you have the trappings of democracy in terms of elections and parties, but you don't really have the empowerment of people, uh, nor do you have the rule of law. <laughs> and so I think on some there are some currents of various African societies that I think are sympathetic to a more authoritarian rule, uh, even in a place like Rwanda. On one level, you know, the ruling party is deeply authoritarian. I think they exaggerate their support, but I think a majority of Rwandans do support them because they also really appreciate the security they have and the economic development that's happened there. And people really worry about if you have a vacuum of power, you have conflict, you have war, you have division. Um, so, you know, with that being said, has the church turned against democracy? No. I mean, they're still generally in their official statements are very supportive but I think there's a growing recognition that democracy isn't just imposed by the United Nations and it doesn't just break out, you know, because, you know, British observers show up every four years. I mean, you have to develop a culture around it. Uh, one, For example, one thing the Congolese church has done in recent elections is to deploy election monitors and they train these folks for months. They've started already for the elections at the end of this year. In the last presidential elections in Congo, they deployed 30,000 electoral observers under the church. You know, so this, you know, that's a tangible example of, OK, we have to move beyond just issuing pious statements that are scholars like to read because the church seems progressive to actually, you know, how do we move the needle on the ground toward holding holding actors accountable when they're trying to cheat in elections, you know, and things like that. So. So I think that's that's changing, that's moving. Um, but you're, I think you're, to answer your question in summary, no. I mean, but you know, there's not, there has been, I think, shifts, but the struggle for democracy is still very much a struggle. You mentioned in this response the rule of law, and I wouldn't mm -hmm. say that I'm even like academically speaking much of an expert on the subject because if somebody asked me to define the rule of law, I don't think I'd be able to. But just from what I've heard about it. It seems like this is a concept that at least like the way it's enshrined today in international law or whatever, in like international rhetoric, it arose out of a sort of, but there are religious roots to it, right? But the crusades and stuff, if I'm mm. not wrong, where that's where it comes from, that the, the rule of law, quote unquote, is mm. the rule of a certain religious law. Like that's what it's all based off of. Mm -hmm. um, so the first question I have is, is that something that if we look at Catholicism as a positive force in this region where obviously we do have like a certain turbulence in terms of like politics and stuff, do you think that that could be a kind of unifying force? But then also in a mm. previous response, you mentioned you kind of made this uh, dissociation between Catholicism in this region and mm. theocracies like Iran, the way they function. Mm. So I know you right. said that like on a broad political level, that's not how it works. But at mm. the micro level with like individual villages, individual towns, individual regions, mm. etc. Um, are there kind of minor theocracies in the way that the Catholic Church kind of um has administrative power in a certain sense? Or mm. is that not at all how it works? Yeah. No, thank you. Again, it's a good question. I I think it sometimes depends on the strength of the state. So if you're in a place again like rural Congo where the state is largely absent or inept or corrupt the church i think you could almost argue almost can be an alternative type of state although i even there i not during the colonial period i would say that even more i mean even to the point of sometimes having legal punishments and things like that i don't the, the churches aren't going that far but you know there was a place I've, I've done research in in congo where for example the bishop was building a road uh, in uh in with support from catholic relief services internationally i mean that that would go beyond what you would expect right and even some other churches in other parts of africa so i think in more urban areas you know not as much you know where the where the 
the state is more established, where you have more social services. I think also in countries, for example, like Rwanda, where the state, while being authoritarian, is also very much a, de a developmental state and is providing much more in terms of public services. Uh, you know, the church is involved in reconciliation work, but the church isn't doing formally a, a lot of political things or, again, delivering mail or other services we might associate with the state. So I think it varies. I mean, I don't, I think what I'm, was behind my original point is like in the constitution of these states and in their formal kind of political vision, it still would follow broadly a post-Westphalian, you know, liberal secular model that comes out of Europe where, uh, you know, this church and state are formally separate. You don't have a kind of theistic, you know, power that's somehow justifying everything. And so, again, in that sense, I think very different than the Islamic Republic of Iran or or even to go back to your earlier point, what might have been the model of of crusading Christian powers in the Middle Ages. That, you know, it's, the world is very, very different than it was 800 years ago. So considering that we've been strictly approaching these issues from an IR perspective, I was wondering if we could take a feminist approach to the intersection between Catholic thought and Ugandan politics by analyzing the ways in which Catholicism's ideals and practices have intersected with uh, mm. gender and sexuality in Uganda and how this has influenced the political discourse and policy making. So mm -hmm. my question here is, what is the role of women within the Catholic Church? And what are some conflicts that have arisen between Catholic institutions and gender and sexuality issues? And how has this influenced Ugandan politics? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. And specifically about Uganda then. Yes, right? uh, okay. since you mentioned you specialize in uh, Uganda, Rwanda, yeah, and the DRC. Sure, sure, yeah. So, and I might, if it's okay, broaden it a little bit beyond just the Catholic Church, because I think those questions entail, especially in Uganda, you have multiple churches that are very important, if that's okay. So, uh, a couple things. I mean, one, to start on the Catholic side, I mean, you have very, very important religious communities of women uh, that going back to the colonial period were started locally um, and remain, you know, very important today. Uh, I, I taught in Uganda for some time and I was just really impressed with the, the social role of often these, these sisters, you know, whether it's running schools and hospitals or just the kind of almost unofficial social work they're doing in communities. So you have this kind of grassroots presence of when women religious that's strong and in many ways i think much stronger than what you'd see in the west now uh so that's that's an important factor at the political level i think the state is still pretty patriarchal i mean to give an example the president yoweri museveni is trying to impose his son uh whose name is uh, muhozi on the as the, as the next leader and Many commentators have pointed out that uh, his daughters are much more clever, <laughs> you know, and would uh, probably be more effective leaders. And but there's a certain kind of militaristic, patriarchal political culture that I think still women have served as prime ministers. There's many more women in parliament. Some so some things have changed, but there's still I think at that top level, and particularly in the military, kind of resistance to that. And and. Of course, the Catholic Church itself does not ordain women, so that puts a limit on, uh, you know, women religious are very important, but there obviously are not female bishops. Uh, the Anglican Church would be different in that there are women who serve as priests in the Anglican Church in Uganda, uh, as well as elsewhere. Um, you have a lot of history in the Anglican Church also of lay women's groups being very important. That started to happen in the Catholic Church, but a little bit later. Uh, so, you know, I think yeah, I, that kind of gets at some of your question. I mean, in terms of one of the big controversies in Uganda going back a decade or so was around the anti-homosexuality bill uh, that was briefly introduced into parliament and initially passed and the president vetoed it um, largely because of U.S. pressure. Uh, but that, in my mind, was really driven a lot by particularly evangelical churches. And there was an interesting coalescence of traditional conservative Western churches that were increasingly marginalized in North America, kind of allying with African churches that, as I said earlier, are much more traditional, 
around questions of sexuality. Uh, and then and then it sort of combined in, in an interesting uh, way with that kind of anti-colonial discourse so that, and this is still present even today, but the sense that liberal Westerners are trying to impose their values on Africans, right? And so this whole agenda of LG, LGBTQ rights is just another effort for the West to try to tell Africans what to do and how to be civilized. And that's that's not, that's, one can challenge that, but that's not always easy to get around because, uh, and of course, a lot of the more liberal progressives are supporting, it's the last thing they want to be accused of as being colonial agents, right? That's That's not what they identify as. But so I think part of the success, you could say, of that movement is that it brought together all of these different influences, even even a tradition such as the Uganda martyrs, who are very foundational to that church. One of the things they you could say they got in trouble with with their king was resisting the king's kind of pedophilic advances because these were young guys. So uh, and really, you know, I I would they were abusive but homosexual in nature. And so there's there's these traditions there too that all came together. With that being said, that law in my mind was extreme, even for Uganda. I don't think most Ugandans would support gay marriage or something along those lines. But all, but generally, most people, you live and let live, and you don't also just go and hunt people down and arrest them. And so, I I think that law again, it it was introduced, it was then pulled out in part because the U.S. threatened to pull all its funding. Uh, by no means is it an easy place to be LGBTQ. And I think there are local activists that are trying to move things in a more inclusive direction. But um, but I think, again, the Catholic Church for, for sure would be have a conservative view on that. But I don't I don't necessarily see them as the kind of lead actor, you know, in that. Um, uh, and then maybe one last point, I think recently Pope Francis has tried to come out more strongly to decriminalize homosexuality and a lot of activists in the West want the Pope to go further and support gay marriage. But I think what the Pope recognizes is that in many parts of the world, gay marriage is nowhere ever going to happen, at least in the near term. But what you want to do is to try to prevent imprisonment, death, persecution uh, as at least a first step to protect people's human rights. And so I think you, if you listen to the Pope on this, he's he's been talking more about the, these types of questions, I think, with places like Uganda in mind. Speaking of political leaders uh, that are very devoted to religion, um, let's talk about Benedicto Kiwanuka. So when mm. Kiwanuka came into the political scene, the Democratic Party that he led, uh, transcended cultural and geographical lines and went beyond Buganda and um, united the kingdoms and people across Africa with one political thought and vision mm -hmm. in mind, in a sense. Uh, so diving further into this intersection between politics and religion, how did Benedicto Kiwanuka's political career and his devotion to Catholicism intersect with the broader political landscape in Uganda during the 1950s and 60s? Uh, yeah, Benedicto Kiwanuka grew up in Buganda, which, uh, and particularly in a region of Buganda that uh, around the city, modern city of Masaka is a very deeply Catholic region that grew out of a territorial split that happened in the midst and aftermath of a civil war that broke out in the early colonial period in the 1890s, which really was driven in part, at least by religious divisions. So Kiwanuka was immersed in this type of Catholic world growing up in the 30s and 40s. Uh, as you said, he's a deeply devout person. He also uh, trained as a lawyer, including at the University of London, where he received his law degree. So he was you know, very much immersed in kind of modern constitutional law and modern even Western political thought. And so I think in a way he merged his own personal devotion with an equal commitment to modern liberal democracy. Uh, he was shaped for sure by, as I said earlier, by currents of Catholic social thought that were turning in an increasingly pro democracy direction. But I think his vision for his party was in part to stand with Catholics who had been somewhat discriminated against during the colonial period. But I think his really overarching goal uh, was to try to build, as you said, a, a more inclusive kind of politics that would get beyond the uh, politics of ethnicity that had been so divisive between the kingdom of Buganda and other parts of the country. Uh, and also even to bring in others into the party. Uh, you, to some degree, his party, which was called the, the DP or the Democratic Party, remained a predominantly Catholic party. So 
you could, I don't know if he failed, but that's where it was. But I, I as I said earlier, I think it was always a, a, a Catholicism or a Catholic politics that's directed, again, not just to sort of advance the sectarian interests of Catholics, but to really try to support the broader common good, maybe from a Catholic lens, but not just exclusive. And, you know, and so a lot of his political thought also would have been, you know, to some degree shared by other activists of the time. Uh, but, you know, a guy whose formal political leadership was relatively short, uh, and he spent much of his later life in opposite, opposition politics, and then was uh, briefly the Supreme Court uh, justice before he was assassinated by uh, Idi Amin. I'm wondering about this sort of scholarly marriage that you have with Tiwanuka, because you've done a lot of work on him, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering why you yep. picked a specific leader out of all in the region, and are there any other potential um, Catholic leaders or other leaders in the region who interest you, who could have, let's say, similar characteristics in terms mm -hmm. of your research interests? What was it about him that made you focus so much? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. When I first started work on this, uh, on one of these books on leadership and Catholic leadership in Uganda, he was not initially on my radar. I was focusing more on a particular archbishop named Emmanuel Nsubaga. But when I was doing research in Uganda, this must have been in, in 2015, uh, I happened, a bishop working through a priest I knew gave me this huge dossier and it was the canonization cause for Ben Kiwanuka. I thought, I was like, who is this politician that they're trying to make a saint? I mean, you know, initially, you know, whatever you think, you know, that's not normal. <laughs> you know, so, so, and I, so I started reading through all these documents, like who, you know, and I knew, maybe knew a little bit about this guy, but not a lot, but I was just really intrigued by, you know, who is this guy? And then my, my colleague who ended up uh, co-authoring a book with John Earl approached me about a year later, uh, Professor Earl's a, a great scholar, begun in history, works at Center College in Kentucky, and he approached me almost as a, a, a another track. I don't even necessarily knew that he knew what I was doing, but saying, "Hey, let's, you know, I have all, access to all of Kiwanuka's personal papers through his family, and I found all this archival work. We, we should work together because you've done all this work on on Catholic politics in East Africa." So, so I think that you know it was it was kind of partly my own journey, and then also working with Professor Earl, and then uncovering just all of these rich resources. And in some cases, you know, Kiwanuka had been a little bit overlooked because he wasn't president for years. And that can happen even in our own country. I mean, you focus on the winners, you know, not necessarily like a huge tome on Adlai Stevenson or whoever, you know, Justin Trudeau beat last time. Or, you know, so, you know, there's a but I think part of our project is to recover a little bit of an alternative history or an alternative movement that has been lost, but really for at least a, an important period in Ugandan history was very, very important, did gain power briefly, nearly held it, and, and almost offers us, well, you know, you have to be careful of this in history, but, you know, could things have been different, right? Could they have followed maybe, a, a, at least from my perspective, a better path and what, what unfolded? And so I think that's also behind it, is trying to recover a little bit of what, of this ferment time at the time, dawn of independence, and Kiwanuka was very much at the heart of that. E even if he did not end up becoming a dominant post-colonial leader, he was a very crucial actor in those years between roughly 1958 and 1962. Uh, so the, the second part of your question, I mean, I, there are other scholars working on this figure, but the Tanzanian president, Julius Nyerere, I think would be a very important subject. I mean, not only was he a devout Catholic. He was president for a quarter century. He's one of the really founding fathers of post-colonial Africa. A very interesting guy because he was very well versed in scripture. He, he translated parts of the Bible into his mother tongue. He knew Catholic social teaching really well. He often argued with his own bishops you know, over you know, contested views. And yet he was also a guy who ran his country as a formally secular state and had Muslims in leadership in his party, right? And so he's a very interesting guy because he's deeply shaped, I think, by Catholic ideas, but again, doesn't take this in a sectarian direction, but very much in a nation-building inter-religious direction. Uh, but again, I, I Nyerere is fascinating. There are about three people I can think of who are working on him right now. So I don't know that I need to be the next one, but... Uh, you know, and there are there are others I could point to, but those he at least initially comes to mind. It's interesting that he brought up Nairere because I was actually thinking about him 
while you were while you were um while you were uh, focusing on the first part of the question, um because Nairere also from what I've read about him, he kind of yeah I, I believe he was knighted for like his contributions to the Catholic world or whatever um with like that area of knowledge, but mm-hmm. also a very important part of his identity as like a Tanzanian politician was That's this right. um socialist ideal I think he called Ujama. It was very mm-hmm. like um indigenous kind of um ethnically focused uh grassroots level movement where he was I don't I'm not too familiar with like the dictates of this um theory of pajama or whatever, but mm-hmm. I just know that that was a major part of his political career of his political ideology as well. So I think uh, it's very interesting that he kind of merged those two. But mm-hmm. the question I had, which I was hoping I, I would I would leave this into, is the affinity that kind of leaders like well, I know Kivan got in served for too long, but in terms of again for foreign policy and international relations, mm-hmm. if they're all leaders in this area of the world who do have similar faiths in terms of let's say mm-hmm. for example Catholic faith, is there a specific affinity that they form with one mm-hmm. another? Is that like a like a breeding ground for a mm-hmm. better relationship? Um, and does that extend beyond continental boundaries? So, for example, we're talking about countries like Uganda and Tanzania, at least in like the conventional Arab discourse. People would assume stuff like aid and development, like the key issues. And obviously, there's a lot more to it, but people would assume that, that in the Western mainstream discourse, that's the most important thing, or that's the most person that comes to mind. So, could this kind of cultural affinity with Catholicism between leaders like Nairere, between Aki Wanukafi itself for longer, with Catholic leaders in like European countries, which are richer, more developed, could mm-hmm. that have served as a basis for, for, for example, better aid relationships, better kind of mm. funding, better propping up, or propping up the long term, but just better um, relationships in terms of development prospects. Do you think mm-hmm. that is a positive that could be used? Or on the flip side, could it be a negative? Could it impede, for example, a Protestant or Islamic ruler from mm. trying to, from donating to a country that's led by someone who's not of their faith? Okay. So what are kind of the pitfalls and benefits of emphasizing this religious or secular identity? Mm-hmm. As right. Yeah, there. I mean, there are a couple parts to your question, so let me see if I can address each one. I, I, I would not overly stress the kind of some kind of Catholic political network uh, in East Africa during this period. So, and for example, Niarere was a strong supporter of Kiwanuka's rival Milton Obote to the point of even largely imposing him on Uganda in the early 1980s when he came back into power. Uh, so. There's not necessarily some, I mean, it, it, by, it, it may be that these leaders share a certain Catholic devotion. They might even, Catholic thought might even be influencing their political vision. But I wouldn't say there's some kind of regional political network where they're all you know, playing off of each other. But on the second part of your question, I do think that internationally it could be important. I know in, in the case of someone like Ben Kiwanuka, even as early as the late 1950s, he was raising funds partly through... Christian democracy networks in Europe that were largely Catholic actors. Uh, he made a particular point to visit with John Kennedy when he was chief minister. Kennedy had just been elected and I think tried to play, you know, this, you know, this Catholic angle, at least some in, in that work. So I and of course, as I mentioned earlier, the ch- church and, you know, churches themselves, although usually the funding is for fellow churches, but they are important international funding actors um so and and can have a role also in terms of what public services are being provided uh in terms of the final part of your question uh what comes to mind is actually when when Idi Amin comes to power he's a nominal muslim this is the 1970s in Uganda but he realizes the strategic value of appearing to be a more devout Muslim. And so he 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 goes so far as to even try to declare Uganda as a Muslim country, which was a little bit ludicrous with the, you know, when you're, the Muslim population is maybe 10, no more than 15% of the country. Uh, but he cultivated very close ties with Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, who at that point, Gaddafi could, was very chameleon-like, but at that point he was really emphasizing a kind of pan-Islamic uh, vision. And, uh, you know, there's the famous, a case in Uganda that even is known internationally where some Israeli citizens have been taken hostage on an airplane and it landed at Entebbe and there was um, even the current uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's brother was killed in this and so you know there there were currents like that I think again to me Amin though probably played that up a little bit more this kind of 
Muslim identity and trying to strategize with the broader world. I don't, among at least these Catholic leaders, I don't see anything that overt. Uh, you know, there may have been subtle ways, as you mentioned, you know, Western powers saying, oh, you know, they share our values, they share our traditions. I mean, there could be subtle factors, but not not overt in the way that uh, Amin was acting, at least in the mid 70s. Maybe not in terms of like broader policy, but definitely because you brought up Amin at the individual level, it might have worked for him because I believe he's like mm. the Saudi Arabia at the end and he was housed there until like, I think he died in 2003. Yeah, you're so right. In Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So at least it worked for him on the personal level, at the very least. Let's talk about Rwanda and the Rwanda genocide. So mm-hmm. um, in the later later years, the Catholic Church was seen making reconciliatory efforts with the Rwandans. But what was the role the Catholic Church played in the Rwandan genocide? Mm. And what impact did the Catholic institutions in Rwanda and the v- Vatican's stance on the genocide have on the relationship between them and the Rwandan people? Mm. Yeah, thank you. So... In the case of Rwanda, the church was a very powerful colonial actor, and uh, there was a massive conversion of elites, predominantly Tutsi elites, uh, to the Catholic faith in the 1930s that was driven by multiple factors, but definitely political expediency was one of them. So uh, the church's politics kind of reversed some in the late colonial period toward a more pro-Hutu uh, again, often channeling some of what we discussed, pro-democratization, pro-social justice, empowering the people who were largely seen as Hutu. In this case, it's maybe not the way one would want that to go, and that it, it, it the revolution, even in 1959, took a very violent turn. Tens of thousands of Tutsi were driven out of the country. Uh, the post-colonial leadership in Rwanda, as elsewhere, went toward in a more indigenous direction. But in Rwanda, that meant that most were Hutu. Uh, and so they were generally, with one or two exceptions, the hierarchy was very, very close to the ruling party, and particularly the, uh, the president, both presidents, including the one at the time of the genocide, Javier Ramana. Uh, and so when the genocide breaks out after Javier Ramana's plane was shot down, uh, Catholic bishops really didn't say much of anything. Uh, they, because they had been seen as so close to the president, a lot of people took their silence as acquiescence. Uh, and you also had a lot of, even some clergy on the ground who were much more vociferous and supporting some of the militias. There were a lot, to be fair, a lot of clergy, of course, were killed, many because they were Tutsi, others because they were resisting the militias. Uh, there were many who tried to protect people. Uh, so I think you have to be careful not to just paint with a completely broad bl- brush, but to be sure the Catholic Church lost a tremendous amount of public credibility and moral credibility in Rwanda because of its failure to really denounce what the state was doing both before and during the genocide. So after the genocide, you mentioned the Vatican. And so the the Vatican, even Pope John Paul II actually spoke out somewhat strongly during the genocide, but the the largely speaking the the ruling power that came in after the genocide was perceived as being opposed to the church and i don't know that that was really fair but the vatican's attitudes kind of shifted so during the genocide it was much more i think in a, in a good way they were very critical but then it, it shifted toward a little more of protecting clergy who had been accused generally denying allegations uh, and this really led to a very difficult period for the church where they just they weren't really dealing, I think, fully with the complicity of what, you know, what they had done and what had happened. So, you know, this uh, there were still movements on the ground, particularly in parishes and prison ministries to try to heal and to try to, you know, admit guilt and fault and bring people back together. I think by the 2000s and especially in the 2000 teens. The hierarchy in Rwanda finally started to move to, to really a, a more confessional posture uh, and to not just talk about individual sinning, but to talk about the whole collective church failing, which was significant. The Pope and Pope Francis invited President Kagame to visit the Vatican. And I think that meeting in 2017 had a, a thawing impact, you could say. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely been a long journey. I think the church does all, still does a lot on the ground. I think there's, especially in, in reconciliation work and healing ministries and just counseling. Uh, but I think because of what happened and because of a perception that 
the church was at best, you know, just just not doing what they should have been doing at that time. And so uh, the the country remains around 50% Catholic, but, uh, you know, at the time of the genocide, it was more like 70%. And a lot of those people have joined Pentecostal churches, the Anglican church, evangelical churches. Uh, so Rwanda has become a much more, it's still a predominantly Christian society, but it's become much more pluralistically Christian, you could say, rather than just a dominant Catholic place. To me, this raises the question of to what extent, at least like on the grassroots, policy or activities by Catholic missionaries, Catholic agents, is dictated by the Vatican? Because this could be purely correlation and not causation. I'm just, I'm just kind of raging here that if you look at the activities of the Catholic Church, at least obviously the isolated incidents and there's a big diversity in responses because of the extent of the Catholic community in Rwanda. Mm. But what we mostly hear about in Rwandan history books from 1994 and previously is that the Catholic Church were complicit. The Catholic churches in Rwanda, many missionaries, mm. many people, uh, I'm pretty sure you know where I'm getting at with this, but many right. of them were complicit in activities of the genociders. But we see mm. after the genocide, um, the conventional regime, and this is what you've written a lot about also, is that the Catholic Church's role in Rwanda was more to promote reconciliation mm-hmm. um, and to promote more confessionism, to promote more kind of, um, just like more stable societies, more kind of reconciliation overall. And this is quite well correlated to the stance of the international community, which I'm assuming includes the Vatican, where they mm-hmm. kind of turned a blind eye or were complicit before mm-hmm. the genocide broke out. But after the genocide, it was all, oh, I'm sorry, dear, never again. Right, all of right. that stuff. And that kind of mm-hmm. goes very well with how the Catholic Church, it seems, seems to me, was performing, uh, acting on the ground before and after the genocide in terms of how they like followed the rhetoric of the international community. Mm-hmm. So is that is that a coincidence or was that because this is literally dictated by the Vatican Church mm. in terms of how they should conduct themselves in the region? Yeah, I tend to think that... Uh... You know, people can overstate the importance of the Vatican and that and when, the reason I say that is that, you know, for the most part, people in Rome, like they don't know really what's going on on the ground in, in these countries. And, you know, the nuncio is an important figure. This is the ambassador of the Vatican to a particular country. And in terms of international relations, these are they are important figures. They even often have real influence, uh, even in government uh, corridors. But even those nuncios who are typically or almost always foreigners are shaped by what local people tell them. And so, you know, to give an example, the nuncio before the genocide, this was an Italian named Giuseppe Bertello. And he was, you know, he saw some massacres of Tutsi and he was really affected by that and actually spoke out quite strongly about what was happening. And that I think influenced why the Vatican was pretty critical during those or those you could say those years 1992 to 94 but then after the genocide the the nuncio was polish and deeply anti-communist and in addition uh the the new post-genocide government had killed several bishops there were clergy who had been either imprisoned or sent away and so there was this this fear in some ways of communism, but also of anti-clericalism. And so that also had this deep impact on, I think, church attitudes that then filtered up. So my, the point I'm trying to make is a lot of people's stereotype of the Catholic church is that it, like it starts in Rome and filters down, but in reality, (laughs) it it filters up. Now that doesn't mean the Pope doesn't matter. His statements aren't important, but uh, it's usually the actual information's coming from the ground floor. So you know, your question, I think, reminds us that often the church reflects what's happening, you know, in the society. Sometimes that's good. I mean, I personally think it's good for churches to be supporting, for example, reconciliation work. But as Martin Luther King famously said, you know, the church at times is called to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. This is in letter to Birmingham jail, meaning that a thermometer just measures what's going on in society and just reflects it, right, for better, for worse. Thermostat actually tries to change the temperature. <laughs> and often I think churches are more thermometers. They don't really cut against what's happening, particularly if it might jeopardize them. They just reflect what's there. And so, yeah, to some degree, the, the church is part of the complicity with whether it was the genocidal violence or even some of the uh, good or bad things that post-genocide Rwanda is because they just, churches are in cultures. They reflect what's there. So 
Um, but again, I, I see that more as reflecting more local dynamics rather than being imposed by the Pope or by some, you know, international actors in Rome. I just, I don't, that doesn't really resonate from what I've studied at least. So um, despite Catholicism's uh, de decline in recent decades due to like the rising popularity of modern secularization or the Rwandan genocide, or like the sexual abuse cases and in the worst cases, uh, pedophilia uh, scandals and as such, the church still plays a major and integral role in state building, social welfare and conflict resolution globally. And even in some parts of the world, Catholicism, like Catholic populations are growing. So mm -hmm. what are some current debates and controversies related to Catholicism in uh, Uganda or Rwanda or the DRC? And how are they shaping political and social discourse uh, in the countries? Yeah, so that, yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, I think on the first part of your question, part of the reason that these churches remain quite important is that those deep secularizing currents just have not been as influential in much of Africa, with the possible exception of South Africa. So, you know, that kind of current of sort of people disaffiliating from religion altogether is just not a huge movement. And maybe it'll come in the future, we don't know. But uh, so with that being said, that's not necessarily the fulcrum of debate the way it might be in other uh, cultures around the world. But uh, I think in, in these places, I, you know, the church is expected to be an honest broker and expected to be providing services to people. And so I think some of the controversies can come if there's corruption among certain leaders or if there's not transparency or, you know, people's money just kind of seems to kind of disappear in a way. So I think, you know, that can vary from place to place, diocese to diocese, but you know, that's, that's, that's a real challenge. I, this is an anecdotal case, but I took some students from Creighton to Tanzania once, and we were we were talking with a local missionary who was serving in this parish, and I asked him how he ended up in this parish, because it's, as I said earlier, most parishes are run by local clergy, not missionaries, and he said, well, people chased the last guy away. I was like, what, what are you talking about? He says, well, he was stealing money from the church, so they burned his car. And they said that they'd burn his house next if he didn't get out. And so he he found his way out of the church. <laughs> so so I mean, sometimes people take matters into their own hands, and you know, sometimes again, there could be a stereotype. Well, oh, Catholics, and they're just docile, and they just do whatever their leaders tell you. It's like, well, if people really care about something, actually, typically not. <laughs> they'll they'll really fight over stuff. And so again, sometimes this stuff is playing out locally. Uh, there was a case in Uganda again, and this is a antidote but true where a local bishop had just largely been rejected by his people for various reasons and he showed up with another bishop and people started stoning him i mean i mean like actual catholics like not it's not like non-catholics it's like people in his own church and they're like you're you're a terrible leader and they're <laughs> throwing stones at this guy and then so then he excommunicated them and I actually ended up visiting a church in this region that hadn't had sacraments in two years because they had been excommunicated, almost like medieval times, you know, no sacraments can be celebrated. So you have these kinds of sort of extreme cases. But what's interesting to me is it's not as often as the sort of what, yes, the church is a hierarchy, but it's not always as simple as, you know, the leaders tell you and then you follow. It's often this give and take, push and pull. Uh, you know, at the national level, I think sometimes the church controversy is there's an expectation that the churches will play a, a kind of prophetic role in society, you know, and calling out the state for abuses and standing with the people. And I think particularly in Uganda and also in Congo, I think that's strongly held. So if church leaders are too quiet at times of elections or they're not maybe serving that gadfly role, I think that can also become a point of criticism. Um, I think there's also some concern. I've seen this particularly in Congo that while people want their bishops to be politically engaged, they don't want them to be politicized, right? And just kind of either too close to one party or all they do is talk about politics. <laughs> uh, and so on one level, I think it's, I actually think the public role of the church is a, generally a positive thing in this part of Africa, but 
the churches are more than politics, right? They're more than international relations. I could have a lot of other conversations with you, you know, if, that have nothing to do with international relations. And I think there's sometimes a concern that the spiritual mission of the church, the religious practices of the church, the prayer traditions, the supernatural reality. I mean, you don't want to lose all of that while you're trying to deploy election monitors, if, if that makes sense. So I think that that sometimes I think can also be you know, attention. And then people, you know, they expect the churches to provide services for them. And so if, if they're not able to do that, that can also be a problem. For, and that, and that can be a real challenge for post-colonial churches because they don't, they don't necessarily have access to the same types of funding that missionaries used to have. And so, you know, missionaries, in addition to other things, one thing they did, they often just gave people a lot of stuff. And I've, I've had a lot of local clergy tell me, you know, that was not good. You, we need people to own their own churches and not just be chair charity cases that expect foreigners to provide stuff for them. So if we're looking at Africanist scholarship as a whole, do you think that this discipline is likely to grow in the future? Because again, the conventional wisdom mm. is that it's a very simplistic kind of um, the reason it's not in the mainstream is because it's kind of been solved for the same problems as a lot of homogeneity across all of these regions. Um, obviously, this is starting to change, but at least conventional everyday wisdom is that there's not much to look into in these cases, which is why there isn't enough scholarship to them. Uh, so do you think this is likely to change? And for someone who's listening, who might want to change their viewpoint, who might mm -hmm. want to learn more about this region, where would you recommend they start? Yeah, well, I, you know, I do think that public religion is very important in Africa. And by no means is that absent from the scholarship, but there's been particular focus on Pentecostal churches and their influence over the last 30 years in public life in Africa. Not surprisingly, there's a lot of interest in Islam. Uh, I think, you know, I think that the focus on actors like Catholicism or even mainline Protestant churches is maybe lagged a little. I think that's starting to change. It was almost like those churches were seen as normal and, and there was much more interest in Pentecostals and they do all this healing and the prosperity gospel. But I think there's a growing recognition that these quote unquote mainline churches remain very influential and, and they need to be studied in a way on their own terms. And so, you know, I would tell a prospective student to, you know, often, I mean, I'm a Catholic myself and I, you know, one has to be sensitive about that because it can give you undue biases it can also give you insights, you know, that you that you have as a Catholic, as somebody in these networks that outsiders don't always have. And so, I, you know, I, and often we follow scholarly interests that are interesting to us. And that's shaped by our reading, but also our identity, our own background. And, you know, so for an aspiring student or Africanist, I would say, well, think, what are you interested in? I mean, what if you're passionate about feminism, then you know, think about the role of women in Africa, you know, following that thread. If if you're really interested in India, well, there's lots of Indian communities in Africa that you can that you can follow. Uh, I, so there are a lot of sort of if you're interested in development work, you know, there are lots of threads in. And I think sometimes that can because this is a very complex and, and, and sophisticated reality. So the second, I guess, advice more generally is just, you know, pick up some good general books on there's some great texts. I mean, I think of somebody like Crawford Young, who's a scholar at such an influence at the University of Wisconsin, but his book on the post-colonial state in Africa, it's just a great book, right? He wrote this near the end of his career. I mean, it's hard to imagine writing this, but I mean, all the way from 1960 up to 2010, just uh, across the continent, how is the state inter intersected with society? I mean, someone like Jean-Francois Bayard's book, the you know the politics of the belly, very famous book from thirty years ago, but it's still there are problems, but there's still a lot of truth in that. I mean, Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom, which is just a really powerful personal story of you know one of the most famous African leaders in my own life as an undergraduate student. That's the book that really drew me to African history. I was so sometimes the personal narrative can be very very compelling. Uh, and then that draws you in. So I think, I think there, yeah, there's some great books. I think, you know, I read recently, um, gosh, what is his name? It's David Von Riebrook. He's a Belgian writer. His book, Congo, an Epic History of a People. Get just a wonderful, very well-written, very narratively told, but just gives you this sweep of Congolese history over the last century. Uh, so yeah, I'd say, you know, picking up books like that and then taking good classes uh, and then trying to figure out, okay, well, what's maybe trying to get on the ground, you know, and seeing, encountering for yourself. 
uh, and then maybe figuring, okay, well, what, what maybe small contribution can I make? Uh, you know, you don't want to be, you don't want to repeat the colonial mistake of trying to you know, be, say more than you really should. And, and you need to be well aware of your own social racial location. But I think, uh, you know, we can all make contributions. And I've generally found in a good way that my interlocutors in Uganda and Rwanda and Congo have been very welcoming of my work. And, you know, and 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 I'm always trying to read local scholars as well, because there's a tremendous amount of scholarship that's always being done within a particular context. And so even though some of those authors I mentioned earlier were Westerners, you know, trying to dive deeper to really look at, you know, what are local scholars writing in this context, I think can help to complete the picture.